and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined, as always, by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. How are you doing, Harvey? I'm fantastic. Good. And Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. How are things out there in the north? They are good. We are finally done with the semester, so Ooh, hallelujah. That's, that's exciting. We can we can celebrate, and, and Harvey can imagine his sun-bleached vacation someday. <laughs> yes, <I don't... laughs> in one more month. In one more month. Oh, and did you guys notice how I switched up the order of introducing you? I love it. <laughs> we have no idea what's coming. Um, today, Always keep them guessing, Pam. <laughs> that's right. Uh, today on the podcast, we are going to talk about the podcast. We'll give you a hint of what is coming for the, the future of On Tap. We will talk about Beyonce Knowles's Lemonade and Bell Hooks's Critical Response. I don't know if one even calls her Beyonce Knowles anymore, right? It's just Beyonce. Just Beyonce. Just Beyonce. Queen B. And we will talk about digital humanities and theater and performance studies, um, a new or I should say ongoing project to digitize the Comedy Francaise's box office and administrative documents. Uh, held a conference in Cambridge recently, and this has coincided with renewed um, criticism about digital humanities initiatives. Before we get to that, though, some news to round up for you. It's going to be awards season soon, and we already have seen an announcement of one important award. Henry Biles, Playing God, has won the Frick Award from the American Theater and Drama Society. Other awards will be announced at ATHA, though I don't believe that others have been officially announced. There is also news that has come out about this season, uh, this year's job market. This, I'll say, these announcements are rather heavily weighted towards what comes through my Facebook feed, and uh, we don't mean to um, in any way overlook uh, other people who have accepted exciting new jobs, but we thought that some of these were worth note. Um, Catherine Cole uh, has announced that she's leaving the University of California at Berkeley for the University of Washington. Uh, she will will go to UW and become a divisional dean for the arts. In addition, there are uh, a variety of other um, movements that have been um, announced on Facebook. Uh, Joe Sermatori will be beginning at Skidmore College in the fall. Jacob Gallagher-Ross is leaving SUNY Buffalo for a new position at the University of Toronto. Julia Fawcett is leaving Ryerson University to go to the much-coveted position at University of California at Berkeley. And I just saw this morning that Elisa Morrison has announced that she is accepting a position at Texas A&M University. I don't know. Have I missed anything? Have you guys heard anything else about movements happening in, in jobs in the field? Just one thing is a congratulations to everyone, although why anyone would willingly leave Canada at this particular time in our political history is a little bit beyond me. <laughs> yes. So congratulations, Julia, but I'm not quite sure what you're thinking. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. Well, I think that that job would draw people from all over the world if it were offered to them. Oh, and just so, one thing to add as a proud advisor, my advisee, Megan Geigner, is uh, will be an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval Academy uh, tenure track. She's fantastic. She's great. And she's a gift to that program. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations, Megan. 
So first on the podcast, we wanted to tell you guys a little bit about the plans that we have for this podcast. We are intending to release new episodes on a monthly basis during the academic year, which we interpret as September through April. We also will, we have in mind to release occasional special podcasts, perhaps interviews. But what that basically means is that we'll we'll keep up this consistent rhythm during the months of the academic year, but take a kind of summer hiatus. So this will be the last recording for a little bit, but we are also planning to record um, at ATHA this year. So Sarah, Harvey, and myself will be there. We're planning to record the next edition, which would be 005 at ATHA itself. And very exciting for you podcast listeners. One of those segments we will record in public, um, in the lobby, in the bar, we don't know yet, but we'll keep you updated on our Facebook page through Twitter. Um, we'll make sure that those of you who want to come by um, and even add your actual voice to a recording of On Tap will we'll know when and where that will be happening. Um, so we're excited about that. We look also, forward to seeing you all there. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I also just wanted to give a sort of as a personal note that we've really been gratified by the reception of this podcast. The numbers of listens and the sort of breadth of reception. Personally speaking, this is we are already where I had sort of hoped that we would be after a year of releasing it. And so um, I don't do this, you know, just to toot our own horn a little bit, but really to thank those of you who are downloading, who are streaming, who are telling your friends and colleagues about it as well. Uh, we've gotten some really good feedback, and we we are really happy to see that um, people are enjoying this uh, this project. So yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, panel. And Congratulations to us. <laughs> that's right. And uh, and in fact, one of the sort of nice things that seems to be coming out of the podcast is not just the listenership, but also interest in our colleagues of initiating their own podcast. So we, I think, have had at least a couple of inquiries that have come to me. Maybe you've had more panel about uh, requests for information about setting up a podcast. And I've seen a few people promoting or sort of testing the waters on their Facebook feeds and on Twitter. So I think it's yes. it's a it's a it's a great time for podcasts. Yes, I'm I'm very excited to see. I know that from what I understand, Brian Herrera is planning to create and release his own podcast, which will be terrific. Uh, he gets to see a lot of theater that I wish that I could see, and I'm very excited to to hear his interpretations and his sort of critical responses to the things that he's seeing. But enough about us. We will now move into our second segment on Beyonce's visual album, Lemonade. At the end of April, Beyonce released a fully formed video album. The release of this was coordinated with her current live tour, the Formation World Tour. But this album has garnered a lot of, of interest and critical response. The visual style of, of it has been compared to Terrence Malick um, and to the photography of Carrie Mae Weems. There was also a, a, a critical essay that was released by Bell Hooks, who gives a rather trenchant criticism of the extent to which this is a kind of coherent 
feminist statement by Beyonce. So we watched Lemonade and we read the essay. Harvey, do you want to lead us off? What did you think about Lemonade and what did you think about Bell Hooks's response? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's yeah, it's to, to begin. It was actually Sarah who suggested that we talk about Lemonade and take some time to think through and witness and rewitness the visual album. So uh, kudos to Sarah for this great idea. Uh, and indeed, it's, it's it's spectacular. I encourage everyone to watch and rewatch and re-rewatch uh, Lemonade to uh, get a sense of the many different moves that Beyonce is making. Uh, in my initial reading of it and thinking of it, I, was, I went to my friend Wesley Morris, who writes for the New York Times. It's one of my friends from college. And Wesley in the Times, and we'll post this on the OneTap link, you know, he writes uh, in his article that, and I, here I'm going to quote Wesley right now, uh, he says that Lemonade's, it's a visual album uh, in which the story centers on a woman in a marriage she didn't know was bad until, of course, she knew. <laughs> and, and, and there's many moves that's happening here in Lemonade where you get this sense of trying to process infidelity, uh, trying to understand how that engages her own conception of herself, how she gains strength. Uh, and independence in her own sense of self-confidence. And then there's this odd sort of redemption moment at the end. And it's just kind of this fascinating move from start to finish. And the the emotions that I went through as a listener were just kind of quite extreme. Uh, So it had a very personal uh, sort of resonance, you know, mainly because it's like I felt like I was that person in the narrative sort of feeling the emotions that Beyonce was working through. It was kind of crazy and intense. Yeah, but Sarah, what do you think? I this was actually suggested to me by my friend Ron Emke who he posts all kinds of wonderful stuff but he really targeted this as as a kind of extraordinary video to look at and as a as a piece of art to contemplate so so that's how I came to it and you know I have a couple of points of entry on this one is that I found the sort of, you know, historicity of it really compelling, right? She's on the one hand, and this is something Bell Hooks kind of takes her for task for, it's like this kind of, you know, my man done done me wrong kind of narrative, but but it really opens into so many deeper historical conversations of what's happening and particularly the use of place and site uh, and locating the history of of black femininity and black women in the United States in a particular kind of Southern context, and then playing out different dimensions of that mythology, literary references, visual references, you know, to to the sources that panel mentioned at the beginning, of course, Julie, Julie Dash and Daughters of the Dust becomes a really strong visual reference. So I found that really compelling. The, the second thing that I found perhaps even more compelling was the aesthetic choice, uh, the sort of meta choice of doing or, or releasing an album as basically a short film and the capacity for a kind of experimental filmmaking to suddenly hit the mainstream. And there are, are a few interesting examples of this. You know, I'm thinking of Tree of Life, which was another film uh, where people thought they were going in for one thing and then got, you know, smacked upside the head with the avant-garde. And I thought, you know, you go in to see Brad Pitt and you get dinosaurs, you know, in some sort of, you know, gothic family context. And and so I found that this kind of did the same thing uh, in a lot of ways. So I found that, that really interesting. Um, and I've been reading, in addition to the Hooks piece, uh, there's a blog post by a uh, assistant professor at University of Buffalo, Lakeisha Simmons. Um, and this, my my partner, Lena, turned me on to. She has a 
Lakeisha has written a, a book called Crescent City Girls, The Lives of Young Black Women in Segregated New Orleans. It's out from uh, University of uh, North Carolina Press. And on their blog, she has a piece that talks about the Lemonade as a site-based critique and particularly kind of digs down into different locations and why they're chosen and what they refer to and how that connects into the larger narrative. So, I mean, there's there's so much more to talk about in this album than I think we can cover in a short <laughs> podcast segment, but I, I highly recommend it for people who haven't seen it or engaged with it, in part because I think it really speaks to a larger cultural moment that we're in where performance has become the dominant meme of culture, right? So it's manifesting itself in visual, but also now in musical context as well. And I I think this is going to be a trend that continues going forward. What did you think, panel? I thought it was really interesting, uh, in part for the reasons that you mentioned, the use of space, architecture, site. I was reminded of Beyonce's appearance in the most recent Super Bowl halftime show. And I think there's a case to be made that you easily connect that live performance to the film, to the audio album, to the current tour that Beyonce, in a very sophisticated way, is using multiple media channels simultaneously to get through the kind of hyperactive noise and you know super quick media cycle. I mean, we're, we're talking about this a month later, and perhaps other people have sort of watched it and moved on and in the rapid pace of pop cultural production perhaps it won't make as much of an impact as it seemed to initially but I think that that halftime show appearance where her backup dancers are you know they're wearing they're wearing black there are berets there's a kind of conscious citation of the black power movement that's cited and the video for formation has some really resonant and challenging images that are also connected to uh, a football stadium, right? To the way that the the Superdome was um, became a place of refuge for victims of Hurricane Katrina. There's a really sort of sophisticated network of citations that she's using there, um, and I think architecture in place is is a huge part of that. You know, I was interested to know what your reactions were to Bill Hooks's criticism of it because in a way that's typical, I think, of her criticism. She really cuts right to the point. I think she gives Beyonce credit for, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of affirmative and progressive way, showcasing the black female body, particularly in Lemonade, in a, in a way that counteracts the, the sort of um, disappearing pressure that a lot of pop culture has exerted on, on black bodies and black women's bodies in particular. But she's rather trenchant in the way that she sizes up the overall feminist message. So she and this is hooks that I'm quoting here, she says that black female images do not truly overshadow or change conventional sexist constructions of black female identity. She takes uh, Beyonce to task for recycling a kind of narrative of victimhood that is visited on black women, you know, in a way, and this is her concluding point, she says that Lemonade glamorizes a world of gendered cultural paradox and contradiction. You know, so she's tough on on Beyonce. I guess part of the question that I had finishing that Hooks essay, though, was I think that people can be kind of tough on Beyonce. She's such a sophisticated entertainer, businesswoman. I remember cynicism in the response to a documentary that she released about 
um, a, an earlier tour that she did in 2013 called Life is But a Dream. But if you compare Beyonce to other, uh, I don't know, her peers like Taylor Swift or Katy Perry or other, you know, pop megastars who give a kind of lukewarm, self-affirmative feminism that's not really feminist, or if you compare her to past um, black female superstars like, I don't know, Janet Jackson or Whitney Houston, I feel like what Beyonce is doing is actually rather interesting and, and challenging compared to those other figures. Well, I guess my thinking here is that Beyonce's intervention is really an opportunity to allow us to center black women's subjectivity uh, and black women's lived experiences in a way that's widely accessible and relatable. So that's why I was talking about the sort of the emotional resonance of the piece. Uh, and I'm thinking about this in part because, you know, I recently finished a piece on, on Roots, and that generated a large cultural conversation around the slave trade and, and black captivity. But when you really center on it, you realize it's really about men's experiences and that, you know, women are given short shrift in that. And to sit down and watch Lemonade, the visual album, what you do is you see this sort of extended meditation on on a lived experience from uh, a point of view that's not often publicly presented, right? So that's the thing that I think is a value. And what Hooks is doing in her essay is I think that she's sort of quibbling with uh, the, the framing, uh, but I think that in, in her assertion, she's missing the larger intervention that Lemonade is making. Harvey, when you look at this, and, and I'm thinking of, of Hooks's critique of capitalism and, and that this is being distributed by title, and I mean, it's sort of embedded within a capitalist enterprise and, and could not do otherwise. But I'm, I'm curious, how do, you see, how do you see that playing out? Because it seems to me that in some ways, Beyonce's very strength and the kind of pro-feminist angle is also one that is enabled to a particular kind of endorsement of capitalism. And, and so I'm, I'm curious that how, do, how does that fit into to narratives as you're sort of thinking through them? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a way in which um, Beyonce's sort of history actually is tied into a very commercialized, popular uh, sort of celebration of female empowerment, right? So we think of I'm drawing the blank of the, of the name of her. Destiny's her, Child. Destiny's Child, right? You know, yeah. So think of Independent Women and, and, and other sort of songs, right? You know, There was a way in which it was sort of capturing this uh, market um, segment that really wanted a sort of uh, an empowering message, right? Now, the thing is, I think that there's a way in which you can be part of a structure that's for profit, that is highly commercialized, um, you know, that is embedded in those things while still have an affirmative message, right? I, I think that's a possibility that, you know, one's potential uh, to excite and insight a radical politics doesn't necessarily have to run counter to, you know, an involvement, right, you know, in a commercial industry. I'm also, I was, as you're talking, it reminds me also of the, of the presence of Serena Williams and her position in the in the piece both i mean because she she's most i mean i think she's exclusively dancing right and this like highly sexualized or you know form of dance that has a lot of sexual connotations to it but there's something that is particularly not objectifying in that segment right where they're in the house and beyonce is in the kind of chair throne 
position of power. And it's this idea of reclaiming patriarchal space. And I was thinking, as you're talking, you know, one of the interesting things about Williams is that so much of the critique around her is precisely this intersection of a singular figure, a black woman, and capitalism, and and precisely the neoliberal critique, right, which is that she is the greatest tennis player in the world. But that's not what she, that's not where the money is. Right. Mm-hmm. The money is in the sort of sexual objectification. So women who conform to standards of beauty, white, thin, etc., the tennis doesn't matter. And it seems to me that one of the subtle moves that Beyonce makes that I think, you know, who am I to criticize bell hooks, but uh, that hooks perhaps glides over is that, in fact, there are these little critical nuggets within within the piece. And I think particularly Serena Williams you know, basically twerking through that song and in that scene really kind of brings a, a kind of capitalist presence together in what is otherwise an album that's designed to sell and make money. And and that I really, and I would, I, I imagine that there are more that I'm just, you know, missing because I haven't spent enough time with it. Right. I mean, or, or you could look at in the, uh, that's that freedom song, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, in that piece, it's, it's replaying, uh, excerpts from uh, recordings from uh, the, from Alan Lomax, right? You know, sort of his tours among the uh, American South, right? So, what does it mean to then call attention to you know, sort of a person who himself has sort of collected these sort of black folk songs, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. uh, for his own purposes, uh, and then profited himself, you know, uh, separate from the actual artist who originated this work, right? So, and but then how that gets sort of reappropriated by Beyonce uh, with a difference, right? Uh, and then you know bringing in Kendrick Lamar as well with his politics, which we've talked about in a previous episode. You know, so all that comes together, right? So I think that there are these ruptures that occur in the visual album uh, that uh, certainly allow for multiple interpretations. I think that Bell Hooks' criticism, she starts off by mentioning the kind of capitalist virtuosity, right? She says in the beginning of the essay that my first reaction was, wow, this is capitalist enterprise at its best. Good for you. And then at the end, I think she sort of concludes on a note of criticizing the the sort of feminist bona fides of the way that that text is constructed you know there's a there's a very evocative scene of Beyonce swinging a baseball bat and smashing up a bunch of cars and and Hook's comments that we're not there's nothing particularly liberatory about appropriating male violent tendencies in in the name of a feminist uh, project but I, I personally think that the the question of the extent to which Beyonce's mastering of of commerce is something that indicts the project. I'm kind of amazed by the way that she's able to pull off certain combinations of things that could be seen as perverse. I mean, she's promoting her new tour. She's promoting her album. Uh, As Hooks mentions, she's got a sort of sport clothing line that's about to launch. And if you actually, you know, to return to the Super Bowl performance, you know, she is adopting some of the gesture and uh, costuming of black power, putting it in the Super Bowl halftime show where it's going to offend some people and where some people did criticize her for sort of, you know, a political display. But on the other hand, that performance was timed in coincidence with the release of the video for Formation, which has these Katrina images. So uh, on the one hand, you could say she's challenging that format. She's provoking audiences. She's promoting political consciousness. On the other hand, you could say she's doing this in a ha- in a Super Bowl halftime show, boosting ratings, collecting profits along the way, and so is it 
ideologically incoherent and perverse, or is it a kind of triumphal, virtuosic combination of of the efforts that are going to lead to tremendous personal gain for her and a um, uh, something that draws attention to racist and sexist exploitation. I was kind of amazed by my own. I, I don't think I think I'm a average level Beyonce fan, and I was not actually offended by the um, the way that she brings together a lot of um, strident, powerful political images. I mean, the mothers of Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, um, Mike Brown appear in this video, but it somehow doesn't seem exploitative. Well, I think I think she she's more careful with. Well, I think she's careful with all the images. I think certain. I think she anticipates a lot of the potential avenues of critique, and and incorporates that into what she's doing. The other thing I would say is that, you know, I think she's just very very savvy about image and presentation. Uh, the one thing I would say is, in what you were saying, maybe remember this panel is that while I don't think she necessarily exploits or or inappropriately appropriates, that's an awkward phrase, but I like it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, the or, or sort of like the sort of everyday women on the street, right, that she sort of highlights and frames uh, as worthy of attention and and beautiful, right, in the against the text by Malcolm X. The one thing she doesn't do is recognize the artists that she quite extensively appropriates and 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 draws on. So that scene that you were referring to that that Hooks mentions of the smashing cars with the baseball bat, right? That's um, Pippa Lottie Reist's video uh, from uh, 1997. And in fact, Dominic Johnson is a is one of my Facebook friends, and he had written about Manuel Vason and Lucille Acevedo Jones's piece uh, that they had done in his book Encounters. And in fact, the scene where she's in the parking garage, the underground parking garage in the you know, the sari and henna with the flames, right? That comes out of um, uh, another piece with by the two of them with um, Rajni Shah. So they're actually, and they're, they're just completely lifted. And it, it reminds, of course, us of, you know, her total ripoff of Teresa, you know, the Charismacher's, right, dance that she just completely incorporated into a video. So so while I think there's, there's respect for certain framing, uh, and I may be getting some of my illusions incorrect here. I'll try to link to them on our Facebook page if people are interested in hunting them down. But there is a way in which she is kind of scouring the avant-garde or, you know, experimental work, collecting mm-hmm. interesting images and then recycling it almost un mm-hmm. unchanged within her own work without any attribution or or even acknowledgement that this isn't where sure. you know where it might have come from. Sure. I mean and, and in that way she's following in the footsteps of, you know, other pop megastars like Madonna who just took voguing <laughs> from um, sort of queer ball scene that everyone knows now from Paris is Burning and made it into her own thing. And she also, to, to, to make note of another sort of appropriation, though certainly with credit, a lot of this film, the sort of between the songs, there's a lot of poetry written by Warson Shire, uh, a Somali British poet that lends the whole movie a lot of gravity and sensitivity and, and honesty and sort of gut-punching imagery that the album really would suffer without. And, and that, you know, it, she didn't in any way plagiarize that poetry. It's fully credited. So I guess the question is, what does she think is worth crediting? 
and what does she not <laughs> yeah. not think is worth crediting? And that I think is a yeah. is a, a a very legitimate you know critique that people have made. I, uh, I do wonder in some ways, uh, and, and this is and time will tell. When you fast forward ten years, like what does this moment, this visual essay, this album say about Beyonce's career? Right? Like, is this a moment where uh, she's making a a turn, right, uh, away from popular, lightly politicized work uh, to still popular, uh, but more highly politicized work, right? You know, so in, in a way that sort of Nina Simone's career sort of shifted and changed over time. And I'm wondering, is, is this marking this moment uh, for uh, Beyonce where, you know, can we expect her work to become more engaged, more political, more um, of the moment? Yeah. If I had to predict it now, I would say she's not going to go down the Nina Simone path. I would love to see that. But I just think, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to not give Beyonce sufficient credit. I think this is a really amazing work. But I just think she's foremost a genius generator of popular cultural content. And I really feel like this, if I had to rate the impulses that I imagine generated Lemonade, I think it would be largely you know creative and commercial to begin with. And then somewhere down the line, it becomes political. The only thing, I, I, I think you're probably right. The only thing I would contest there is that the album in many ways points to family and to her daughter. And this emphasis on the black woman's experience in America as being one that is historically founded and pointing to genealogies and then the final image, the sort of redemption, right, of the wayward man and the reassertion of the integrity of the family unit becomes very much a context for the kind of healing that is directed in, in large parts towards the daughter. And so I wonder if anything is going to make Beyonce take a kind of political shift and not one that is, you know, anti-commercial or anti-capitalist or anti any of the things that have been so beneficial. But I do I do think that that is that opens up a, a critical space in how she kind of in how she decides to move forward in thinking about, you know, the future for her own for her own ch- child. Well said. Okay, so we move now from one 21st century creative enterprise and a trenchant critique of engagement with capitalism of it to another. (laughs) Try to diagram that sentence. Uh, But we will now move on to uh, digital humanities and theater and performance studies. So actually now a couple of weeks ago at MIT and Harvard, there was a conference organized around the Comédie Française Registers Project. And this is a website, but a data-driven, data-centric research initiative that has been um, in development since 2009. In brief, this website is a, a tool that allows researchers and anyone to sift through the information that sits in the archives of the Comédie Française, which was the first national theater in the world and a continuously operating cultural institution in France since the late 17th century. So the the CFRP website allows you to go through and look at repertory, what was performed on individual nights, playwrights were produced, and there are high 
resolution digital scans of all of these pages, as well as a set of applications that allow you to sift through the data in different ways. But you can go through and look at the administrative notes from meetings where the company read new plays and decided whether or not they wanted them. And you can even look and see the amounts of revenue that were collected on individual nights uh, for different areas of the theater, which to theater historians and and theater architecture uh, scholars like myself is just an amazing resource and and tool to be able to explore. Um, So I went to this conference and it was my first real engagement myself with what can be called digital humanities, data-centric, computer-driven looks at uh, the objects that have traditionally been investigated by literary historians and his and historians. And at the same time, there has recently been an, an essay, a really provocative essay published by the LA Review of Books entitled Neoliberal Tools and Archives, A Political History of Digital Humanities. And this is a criticism of digital humanities. It boils down to the statement that digital humanities facilitates the neoliberal takeover of the university. And so, you know, I think that essay does a very useful thing of boiling down a lot of people's um, discomfort with skepticism about the nebulous object known as digital humanities. I think that that essay makes some legitimate claims about reasons to be skeptical of digital humanities, but I have to say that I, having spent a few days really looking at this and and working with it and seeing the types of information that can come out of it, I'm not particularly warm to the idea that if you're using this project, if you're devoting your energy to a project like this, that you're essentially facilitating a corporate takeover of higher education. I think one of the, I I thought the article was very interesting and, and had some some really valid points. I don't know that, I mean, certainly the kind of moment that we're in in terms of data assessment, metrics, looking for, you know, within the kind of corporatization of some universities uh, and colleges that looking at outcomes, I mean, you can sort of link link that question to the, the piece that the New York Times ran last week about CUNY and the shifting of money in in strapped you know financial situations to you know where the students are and so then creating a kind of death spiral for other fields right and certainly the the larger rhetoric of value in higher education of seeing it as something that's going to produce something of value right so so there's all these ways in which data outcomes and metrics as sort of measurable certainly seems to be feeding into a, a particular kind of corporatization. At the same time, I, I think that it's a little bit of a chicken and egg argument. I'm not sure that you can pin a lot of that at the, at the attribute that a lot of that to the digital humanities as a very wide and diverse system of inquiry. And I, I think the one thing that is very, I think we need to be careful about is that the, you know, use of metrics and use of data-driven analysis manifests very differently in very different projects, even within the same fields, and certainly as we move from field to field. So while it may be, you know, like textual analysis or like large scans or examining large data sets, that's hardly the the sum total of what the digital humanities is or can be. And so I, you know, I think it makes for a good op-ed piece (laughs) to kind of pin it in, in particular ways, and certainly you can make those connections. Uh, but I'm much more interested in the ways in which digital technologies facilitate 
performative engagements and interactive engagements. And, you know, I mean, the area that I've been working in of really digital history is this idea, I mean, one of the big major pushes is, is notions of public history and ways in which historical documents can become much more widely available and that historical discourses can become much more accessible to to a broader scope of, of folks. Harvey, what's your take on this? And, and, and maybe, what, like, I don't even know what's going on with digital humanities at, at Northwestern. So maybe, do you, ha- do you guys also have some big initiative? It's growing. It's growing as in at most places. But to respond initially to the article that we uh, all looked at, that op-ed, you know, I think that I think the one sort of strain of truth in that piece is the sense of there being essentially kind of like a, a gold rush <laughs> uh, in terms of the amount of funding that's going in the direction of within quotes digital humanities, uh, and then how that is framing the type of research that occurs, right? Uh, in terms of like whatever the funding body is and what they want, whether it's recreating labs or um, you know hiring um, technicians, you know that begins to alter the type of work that can occur. But ultimately within, within that essay, there's lament, you know, basically calling for more funding for the humanities, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and, and that's something that right. I think we can all agree with that. Yes, that, um, you know, while it's nice for there to be large sums of money going into the area of humanistic study, and research, uh, you know, wanting to uh, have a greater variety of funding outlets would be awesome. Now at Northwestern, what's happening is uh, there's lots going on. Much like most universities, you know, digital humanities is still in the process of developing, defining itself, um, being many different possibilities, right? So a few strains of these uh, consist of, much like many universities, we've partnered with the Mellon Foundation uh, to sort of develop and pilot some uh, digital humanities projects. Uh, Gina Bloom was here, you know, awesome Gina Bloom, I love her. Uh, And she was here with uh, a Shakespeare project that she has where using motion capture cameras, actually, uh, 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 audience members uh, uh, sort of play Shakespearean roles, (laughs) which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Uh, And then we also have this place called The Garage, which is more along the lines of, uh, it's pretty much everything that uh, the author of the article that we read would dislike. Uh, sort of like really aiming to create some exciting collaborations uh, between engineering, computer science, as as well as traditional humanities. Yeah, I, I think in some of the examples and the connections that you guys are making, there are a few things that seem to be important. One is that part of what you're seeing in this essay is a kind of, I don't know, some academics are becoming really allergic to the infiltration of corporate language and sort of Silicon Valley buzzwords into higher education, which, you know, the models of institutional practice for higher education in the West go back into the Middle Ages. And to hear people talking gleefully about disrupting academic publishing and the way that new applications and tools can be used to rejuvenate uh, older pedagogical and research methods, I think rightly makes people somewhat skeptical. Um, But I'm not, I don't believe that there's anything intrinsically neoliberal or that has any particular economic ideology about efforts to apply statistical analyses to things like repertory. Um, Jeff Ravel, who is the CFRP is really a project that he's been working on since 2008. He's a historian at MIT. Um, His presentation at this conference looked at a couple of prior examples, including 18th century examples, where 
theater historians were tabulating, analyzing seasons of theater, putting them in tables, reorganizing the information, you know, making statistical observations about it. So it's not as though we needed the economic thinking of the 1970s and 80s to to be curious about the numbers that that might come out of looking at years of, of producing seasons of theater. And I'll just say briefly, some really interesting facts came out of the work that was going on at this conference. So one of the projects we broke into sort of, you know, teams to work on individual problems. One of the teams was looking at the age of the repertory. In other words, if you looked at every play produced in a season and you attached to that play a number, which was the age of the playwright in that year, and then looked how that number changed over time, what you saw is that the average age of playwright or the average age of play got older and older as the Comédie Française aged through the 18th century. So that's a metric that can show you the sort of conservatism of the repertory. They're they're still doing Racine, Corneille, Moliere, and so in the 18th century, that number gets higher and higher and higher, except in the 1770s and 1780s, where you start to see a rather precipitous shift towards more living playwrights, younger playwrights. Now, that's a fabulously interesting fact that was accessible only through a lot of painstaking work in archives up till that point but then it took a you know 48 hours and some computer engineers and theater historians working together to say look you can see a really significant shift away from a more conservative repertory right before the revolution um you know panel the one thing i would say though you know i kind of can't believe i'm gonna do this but to 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 contest that a little bit i one of the things you said that that and, and i think your example is a really interesting one and certainly Derek miller and his stuff on Broadway has has found similar things, which is let, that you let me can, say as an aside that Derek was there and was doing a lot of really interesting work coding and analyzing this this data set with us. But oh, I'm, I, I have no doubt. I mean, yes. uh, Derek is great. And and the way that he's sort of, you know, shooting data through various statistical models to pull out questions about and 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 what to look at in the history of Broadway performance I think is is really great at the same time I one of the things that people respond to in digital humanities is the emphasis on uh, technology and technological systems with in which they have not been trained and and may have a lack of familiarity and certainly anything new becomes antagonistic and certainly when it says like this new thing that you don't quite understand is going to disrupt everything you do right that's already sets up a kind of model of concern but i would say the the point not to lose sight of is that i don't think we can take any of those tools out of an ideological or an economic context which is to say that while it might be that the particular research question of looking at the age of playwrights right over the history of the comédie française does not seem itself to be ideological. It is relying on tools that absolutely are. And I think one of the things that we need to continually be mindful of is where do, where do these techniques and tools come from? Who's designing these programs? What are they designed for? How are they being constructed? And I mean, some of this is coming up with you know, all the discussion of algorithms and how Facebook, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. And, and I think people are, are attributing a lot of automation to algorithms and, and a lot of neutrality and I think I think this is a this is a real area of concern and so it's I think it's important precisely for the humanities and the digital humanities to continually like reassert and and to learn these tools so that they 
they aren't confusing black boxes into which we look. But I, I, I really contest the idea that they have no ideological or, or economic context to them, you well, know, I, even from their even from their formation. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that they are devoid of historical context. But the idea, and I, and I, I don't know that I would believe that particular research method isn't has an intrinsic ideological freight to it. Really? Um, well, no. Doesn't I every mean, like methodology have an ideology uh, behind it? Well, I think that tools are objects that are disposed to function in certain ways. And so in a way, it boils down to the adage that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you are training yourself to think statistically and to you enter into the you know, the sort of jargon of statistics and, and data mining, suddenly you get infatuated with mean regressions and box charts and um, all of the different ways that you can manipulate data. And you might lose sight of uh, interpretive questions that are, um, from a certain point of view, the point of looking at these things in the first place. I mean, you know, one of the things that was compelling about Jeff Ravel's presentation was that he looked at um, Henry Carrington uh, Lancaster's studies of the Comédie Française. So this, you know, this was a theater historian, a, a professor of French in the early 20th century, who spent a lot of time in his career counting up all of the same data and publishing it in an almanac so that you could look at the numbers that he estimated of attendance on, on different nights, things like this. So all that I will say, I don't mean to say that tools are incapable of doing ideological work. But I will say that if the argument is that statistical analyses of repertory are made possible or are somehow contaminated by a neoliberal ideology that really comes to flourish in the 1970s and 1980s, then what was it doing in the early 20th century? I, I, I mean, I think there are, there are very legitimate critiques of this type of work and things that we need to keep our eye on. But I don't think that you know, it was my first experience thinking about statistics, using computers in my research in this way. And at this moment, I am interested in writing an article that looks at the diversity of repertory season after season as, uh, you know, pot a potential indicator of evolving audience tastes. And I don't feel, I mean, how would I know if I was, but I don't feel, <laughs> you know, co-opted or uh, deluded by, by my serious engagement with these tools. But I, uh, and, and perhaps you are not, but what I would say is that every, you know, any methodology, you know, comes from somewhere and has a history behind it. And, you yes. know, the methodologies, the statistical methodologies of the 1920s certainly had an ideological economic, were, were rested within an ideological and economic context. I mean, to begin with, the extreme privilege to be able to devote the amount of time it must have taken to collecting, assembling, recounting, and enumerating these various points of data in an almanac was itself an indicator of tremendous privilege within, within uh, you know, a, a, a political and economic context. So, so sure. that we can't, we can't deny. The, the question of is it neoliberal or not, you know, I, I think this is, it, it you know can be assessed on a case by case basis, and I don't mean to suggest that your approach is inherently politically tainted. I I frankly think, and I, you know, now I'm going to get all kinds of feedback. I <laughs> I think there are like upsides to neoliberalism. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the, if I could sort of cycle back to Lemonade, one of the interesting things is that Beyonce makes a case for a neoliberal feminist empowerment, right? That is very hard to separate those two things apart and to say. And I think that certainly neoliberalism in this context also has a kind of, right, self-motivating, independent, um, you know, working outside uh, of traditional systems in ways that are, you know, potentially uh, counter-establishment. I mean, they may also be reinforcing a different kind of thing, you know, which is the sort of fear of Silicon Valley and its, you know, language, but but is also working against other kinds of capitalist enterprises, you know, that have themselves done a lot of damage, like AKA Wall Street. So, you know, I do think that these these are things that can't be, I mean, I think the the polemic of the article is is quite clear and, and it gives us a space to fight back against. But I would just say that, you know, I, as we sort of dig into this to, to remind ourselves of, you know, what are, the, what are the stakes for each project? What are the questions? What are the tools? Where do they come from? And how are they coming together in this particular moment? My final thing would be, you know, as in one of the real concerns, I think, with digital humanities is that wealthier institutions are going to get a lot of momentum and a head start in terms of doing this. And then if this becomes what everybody needs at a certain point in order to engage in respective fields, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there, there's going to be a pretty strong bifurcation between the haves and the have-nots of who can support that kind of work and who can't and who wants that kind of work and who doesn't and why. And I think that's where a lot of this tension comes from as well. Right. And if I could hop in here, I think that uh, to, to, from two different angles, you know, one, to go back to the sense of big data and we tease that out within digital humanities. I mean, there is a a bias, you know, that you know, that's attached to it, right? Because whenever you're trying to figure out which fields count, which fields matter, uh, and then those fields become the basis for your outcomes, right? You know, then that will structure and determine which direction scholarship and research will go into the future, right? Uh, and you can imagine that, like, if I were to create a big data set on Shakespeare, for example, like what I chose to include or not include uh, could uh, omit large avenues, uh, a, a large variety of options you know, for the future, right? So that's an issue. And that happens with anyone who's working with data sets, who's, who's building databases, who are uh, responsible for defining the fields, what counts, what does not count, right? You know, so if you're looking at uh, the demographics of playwrights, uh, what do you include, what do you not include, right? Uh, and we can see this within our universities where there are certain things we know about our student body, there are certain things we wish we knew about our student body, right? Uh, and whoever has the power to control what counts and what does not count actually influences the outcome, right? So I think that that's important to keep a handle on. And if you project forward, there's a way in which looking at the social sciences, for example, uh, data sets uh, become the basis for a large amount of scholarship, right? Uh, So you can imagine that if this thing existed on uh, a big giant data set on Elizabethan Jacobian drama, then that would become the set that everyone would use to write dozens upon dozens of articles, many, many books. So you want to be mindful of who has a hand uh, and a role to play in the creation of this work. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Absolutely. I, and I think that that came up at this conference as well. You know, there were there were data entry errors that were throwing 
results off wildly. Some of the presenters at the conference who had made their careers, you know, sitting in the Comedie Francaise archives, going page by page through the same information, pointed out quite rightly that when you're forced to go slowly, you understand the same information in a much different way and frankly a superior way i mean you can see the the different you can see one you know set of handwriting to another change you can see different practices and all sorts of different irregularities in the data that once it's imported into an app seems to just be a unshakable set of facts that really contains a lot of assumptions. Um, I'm going to propose a somewhat utopian, perhaps utterly bankrupt uh, solution to this, which is that one of the things that occurred to me watching these different presentations was that this tool and other tools like it are attractive partly because they create a new type of knowledge. And so, or not a new type, but maybe a new forms of knowledge. So, you know, this comes through, I think, in Franco Moretti's work as well, where if you look at large uh, sets of data related to literature, theater, etc. You have the ability to create these new graphs, right? You get these new sort of beautiful images that are these, you know, sometimes overwhelming plots of networks that connect different works of art. Um, and you can work in that way, continually refining, adding, building these graphs, these sort of ways of visualizing data. And one of the presenters, uh, Jeffrey Peters, um, gave a really fascinating presentation reminding us of the way that these sort of graphs work. Um, there's another type of kind of digitally empowered scholarship that come that has come up as well, and that's the sort of oriented around simulation and recreation, so that you know, there was some talk about, you know, creating architectural simulations of the different buildings that the Comedy Francaise operated in and seeing if you could sort of repopulate them and, and come up with ways to merge the, the sound of given plays with the architectural conditions and how many people you thought were in the building. That way of working also is a different form of knowledge, fundamentally disconnected, I think, from the grapheme and fundamentally diff also disconnected from older ways of working and methodologies which have to do with text and interpretation. This is all to say that, in my mind, the connections between those different forms of knowledge, I think, are really interesting. There's something that seems Sisyphean and kind of empty about just building ever more intricate graphs of repertory or coming up with obsessively truthful reproductions of performance events. But if you're coming up with ways of interpreting plays, texts, images, and contextual pictures of information and looking at simulations, jumping between different forms of knowledge seems to me to be a way that's potentially really productive and that might be more resistant to the displacement where, you know, I think people are worried that we're all going to end up having to work with computer generated research processes. So panel's maybe. enthusiasm reminds me of <laughs> Albert Camus and his myth of Sisyphus in which we should, you know, he concludes like surely we can only imagine Sisyphus happy. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I have to say so you go roll that stone there panel. <laughs> I'm I have to say, I might be shocked that I am the one who ends up being the digital humanities apologist trying to argue against Sarah Beijing, um that, that this is stuff that we should be really interested in. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly don't contest it. And, uh, and I would just remind us all of the Aster member group, 
uh, on digital, digital, what is it? Digital research and scholarship, right? Sort of a group for mm -hmm. new methodologies in, in, in theater and theater history research. So yes. So if your mind you're is more than welcome to join us panel with, with <laughs> other uh, apologists when I'm not feeling so, you know, yeah, no, well, I'm, once I become completely, once my brain is completely reprogrammed by neoliberalism, then I'll be ready to join the digital humanities revolution. I also think that there's a way in which, uh, and this is where the conversation and at some point a debate will occur uh, in the future within other fields where the movement toward digital humanities is also happening a bit after a long-standing, long-running series of conversations in the area of digital media, digital performance, right? So I think that there's a tension that people are not really acknowledging, right? Uh, and in some ways it might have to do with institutionally and field-wise, the tension that exists between the art and humanities, right? Where sometimes they're allies and friends, but often, you know, there's a divide. Well, I would just, I think, you know, Deborah Kaplan wrote a really good piece uh, in Theater Journal a couple of issues ago, and the, the actual title, but basically she gives a kind of rundown of digital projects. Uh, it was like a, a, a review essay that sort of highlighted, and I think that's, and she points to this distinction between you know, digital performance and digital humanities. Um, but I think I, I agree with you, Harvey. I think that's a really kind of critical conversation that hopefully the next two or the upcoming two special issues of Theater Journal, both of which are dedicated, there's two, I think they're consecutive uh, special issues on questions of digital and theater and, and performance studies that I think will be, will address some of those. So maybe we'll, we'll take those up at a future podcast. So now is the time on, on tap when we discuss our drafts. These are thoughts in process, things we've been reading, not fully formed projects. Imagine that each one of these is also a cold, frothy mug of beer at your local conference hotel. Harvey, what do you have on draft for us this time? What do I have right now? Uh, I gotta admit, I've just been thinking about a lot of short essays in response to a series of requests for things. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about Roots uh, in, in light of the History Channel's desire uh, to create a new, exciting sort of community building, bonding TV spectacle like existed back in 1977. So I'm thinking about, you know, what does the reappearance of Roots mean? Uh, in this moment where we're 2016, Trump's running for president, uh, Black Lives Matter is happening. So I'm thinking about that. Um, I'm also thinking about the school year not ending yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then dreaming yeah. of the many things that I might do once the school year ends, either finishing articles or just going to Six Flags and hang out with my son. Yeah. I'm going to resist the urge to make any sort of connection between waiting for the semester to end and the first installment of Roots, which I, which Paige and I watched last night. Um, but it was bracing and tough watching, but also just, I mean, gorgeously realized, like just a really rich viewing experience, I thought. I, I hope that we have the, you know, time <laughs> to, to sort of hang in there and watch and watch the rest of it. But I was impressed by the first installment. Did you know, by the way, that apparently part of what they attribute the viewing success of the 77 series was a massive snowstorm on the East Coast that trapped people in their homes? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's probably a fact that, that, you know, LeVar Burton and other worker, you know, people who worked on the original series are not, fan, <laughs> not fans of. Well, it, it, does, it does beg the question of why you're doing this new one, you know, at the end of May. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. You know, the crazy thing is I, I watched the uh, VHS version of the wow. 1977 uh Roots, and so therefore, it's not like the tenth anniversary edition. It's like the, I guess, pretty much as close to it was broadcast. And if that holds, then the the second name to appear on screen was O.J. Simpson's. You're kidding. You know, among the cast, it's like it was Ed Asner number one, O.J. Simpson number two. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. That that is a that is quite a throwback. Sarah, what do you have on draft for us? Was I. Sorry, Harvey, come to the end of my (laughs) academic year uh, and my first semester at Bowdoin College, which has been just an outstanding experience and really wonderful. I can't say enough nice things. Um, I was sitting at graduation and I was just thinking about the the many parallels between academia and theater as uh, as community projects. Right. Which is that they build these very intense, very close uh, very closed communities that are also innately time limited. And so it fosters all these kinds of things that happen within that space. And then they kind of explode. And, and I was just sort of watching the students who were graduating get ready and sort of thinking about that. And it had exactly the same feel to me as like, you know, shows that are about to close, right? Where you sort of come to this moment where you've all shared this very intense experience and then it's going to kind of be, then you're going to be flung out into the wilds again to to form new kinds of communities. And having spent most of my life in and out of theaters, uh, I'm the child of two theater majors and spent a lot of my childhood in green rooms while people had rehearsal and almost all of my adult life on the academic calendar, I really think that, you know, I'm quite grateful to be able to live in these two completely non-real world settings, right? That it's just like, it's like fantasy and fantasy. And people say like, oh, theater, it's not the real world. And oh, academia, it's not the real world. And I totally agree, right? Mm-hmm. I have I have, <laughs> I have sipped from the cup of reality and I am all, you know, during summers and I am all for staying here in my little, you know, ivory pretense for as long as they will let me. So that's yeah. that's my draft and cheers to everyone who gets to live in the bubble that's a great end of year sentiment it's a reminder that the labor intensive very messy institutions we inhabit are are great nests great places to to live they certainly they certainly can be that's not to ignore the <laughs> the, the realities for lots of people and i'm i you know i say this like a grand hurrah as i go into a year as chair so you know see where i am <laughs> This we'll, time next year, it, we'll it, check in with you. Yeah, in you know, May May of next we, year. We may not be sh- imagining Sisyphus so happy. <laughs> <laughs> May seventeenth. How could he be happy? You can't imagine him happy. I'm. I disagree with Camus. Surely we must imagine him. <laughs> we must imagine him happy. Um, my draft, just briefly, is um, uh, something that was brought up at this at this conference. Uh, Juliette Cherboulier, who's a, a professor of French at, at Minnesota, um, uh, her conference presentation included a discussion of a performance recreation that we can all visit online. It's called the Virtual Paul's Cross Project, and what it is is a, um, a website dedicated to simulating John Donne's Gunpowder Day sermons in 1622. And so it has architectural reproductions that are visual, but also a sophisticated acoustical recreation. And so they have 
an actor's um, an actor reading this famous sermon, and you can sort of position your viewpoint in a variety of places in this courtyard. And they've reconstructed the weather and the way that different, you know, the presence of the different bodies would affect the way it looked and sounded. Um, and this was something I had not, I was not aware of at all. Um, it's the uh, brainchild, I believe, of a professor named John L. Uh, or pardon me, John N. Wall at North Carolina State University. Uh, Virtual Paul's cross project. It's it's great, and it gives you the sense of the potential for um, historical recreations of performance events. Okay, well, thanks, guys. I will reconnect with you guys um, in advance of Atha. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and the Master's Program in Theater and Performance Studies. Mary Ellen Vander Hayden produces the program. You can find us on the web at www.ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter, at On Tap Podcast. 